Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Michael McAdams, president of the Advanced Biofuels Association. ABFA is a professional organization advocating for the new generation fuels. I know what you're all thinking. Biofuels equals ethanol. Ethanol equals higher food prices and net energy loss. This may or may not be true about ethanol, but we actually aren't even going to talk about ethanol today. Ethanol is not one of these next generation fuels. So I invite you to dive in with me, learn about what this next generation of biofuels are, and I hope we can all come away from today's conversation excited about the next generation of these biofuels. I feel like I've said biofuels a lot, so let's let's change topics. Mike, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background, a quick introduction to Advanced Biofuels Association, and before all of that, is it should we call you Mike or Michael? Um, Mike's fine. And uh, so let me just jump right in. And uh, let me, first, let me say thank you for the opportunity to join you this morning. And let me compliment you on uh, your title, Energy Transition Solutions. Uh, it couldn't be anything more appropriate in today's world than understanding what we're about to go under and, and through over the next 20 to 25 years is a massive transition um, in the liquid transportation space as well as electricity and other spaces as we try to achieve a net zero goal and reduce our carbon footprint across the world. Um, and so I started this journey a long time working on Capitol Hill uh, for members of Congress. I worked for President Carter. I met my wife when she worked for Al Gore in the Clinton administration and was doing the climate change um, efforts for Al Gore. Uh, I worked for 15 years as the policy advisor to Lord Brown, the chairman, uh, chief executive officer of British Petroleum, and assisted in the writing of their first climate reduction program in 1995 and 1996. Um, So I've been at this a long, long time. I created the Advanced Biofuels Association, uh, started with four companies in 2006. Today, we boast... 47 companies from all around the world. Um, We're a mix of producers. uh, We're a mix of uh, distributors. Um, Our focus is on delivering low carbon fuels of the future. As you said in your opening remarks, uh, we do not represent any ethanol. 
Um, there were plenty of organizations that already uh, represent ethanol. Uh, when you go back historically, uh, first generation biofuels were originally begun on the Carter administration. I remember them very well, 1978. And the effort there was to try to help uh, create more demand for both corn and soybean um, oil. And, uh, and today, what we look at is a world that really looks at things through a different set of lenses. Uh, and those lenses, I, I, I say three lenses. One is energy security, uh, which in the moment is very important. Uh, environmental sustainability and carbon reduction, which is the real driver of the new liquid transportation fuels of the future. And obviously, all that has to be balanced with what I call the third, uh, third lens, which is economic prosperity for the world. Um, so with that, I'm really proud to represent these companies. Uh, collectively, they make around 5 billion gallons a year of some type of biofuel. Um, and uh, I really appreciate the leadership they show, uh, ind independent in their organizations and collectively as a group. So I'll stop there on the introduction and, and I look forward to our conversation this morning. Mike, thank you for that introduction. There's a lot there to unpack and a lot of very interesting points that you made. One thing I never realized that the push for biofuels was ultimately a push to drive demand for for soy and corn oil. That's very fascinating to think about because it never it to me that saying those first generation biofuels didn't necessarily have anything to do with reducing oil consumption or reducing the carbon footprint of fuels. It was really trying to bolster up a different part of the economy. Mm -hmm. It was it was just to the original intent was to try to support agriculture, the farm, the farm community. Hmm. So that is that's kind of the the old biofuels. But here we're talking about advanced biofuels. So what is, is there a specific agreed upon definition of advanced biofuels? Um, I would say no, because some of the guys would like to take the first generation and turn it into, get, take it from 1.0 to 1.5 or 2.0. And that's a possibility in the future. It should, it should be considered. Um, but I think the easiest way to look at them is, is the statutory definitions under the renewable fuel standard. What, um, just to give you some context, when Jimmy Carter started trying to help the agriculture sector, uh, and then in 1990, we had the Clean Air Act, which tried to um, create a, even more demand for ethanol uh, through, through the Clean Air Act uh, renewable gasoline issues, um, the, what they call RFG, which was which was uh, gasoline and ozone non-attainment areas and carbon monoxide areas uh, in the summer and winter, um, and they they created a, de a demand under the Clean Air Act for um, oxygenates to help the the motors and the cars burn uh, more clearly. And so as we move to the 2000, and so between 78 and 2002, we only. Um, the industry only managed to get, the corn ethanol industry only managed to get to 2 billion gallons. Think about that. That's 20 years. In 2005, the 
the Congress passed on, on, under the Bush administration the first renewable fuel standard bill, and it called for 12.5 billion gallons by 2012. And overnight after that bill passed, we saw massive amounts of ethanol come online under the first bill. Um, we had a second bill passed when Nancy Pelosi took the speakership for the first time in 2007, and that was the RFS2, and that expanded the program from uh, what was originally just a first, uh, it, was a, it was really directed at first gen, to a broader program that created a new, a new um, pool called the Advanced Pool, which still exists under the law today, which is where most of all of my guys operate in, is what we call the Advanced Pool, or the Biomass-Based Diesel Pool, or the Cellulosic Pool. And the goal of the Congress was to try to create 21 billion gallons of advanced biofuels by 2022. And that program also capped corn ethanol at 15 billion gallons uh, in the statute by name. So if you're making a fuel out of corn ethanol, if you're making an ethanol out of corn, um, you're, you're capped at 15 billion gallons under the program. Um, unfortunately, the program has not delivered its promise in the cellulosic, which was the non-food-based uh, category created, um, which required a 60% carbon reduction. The advanced category uh, required a 50% carbon reduction. If you didn't make those reductions, your fuel did not, uh, it was not granted a REN, and it was not covered by the program. When we did the original program and we renewed the, the program in 2007, um, all of the ethanol plants that were on the ground as of the time of that were grandfathered under the law and assumed to have a 20% carbon reduction. As we've moved forward and they repermit some of these facilities, Almost all of these um, ethanol plants now have agreed to a minimum 20% carbon reduction as part of their path. Um, so again, you'll see what you see in the advanced side is fuels that are really have three distinctions. Number one, they deliver a minimum of a 50% carbon reduction. Number two, a lot of them are replacement, direct replacement fuels. So these are fuels that are identical in nature in terms of their composition. Um, their ASTM specs are the same as original fuel from a barrel of oil. Um, it's just a range of new technologies that has figured out how to make these molecules using renewable feedstocks. That's an absolute must. And many of those feedstocks, as we go into the future, will become non-food-based feedstocks like um, woody biomass, municipal solid waste, gaseous conversion, um, a number of different uh, elements that you'll see more prevalent as we move out towards 2030 to 2040. Yeah, this all sounds great. The idea of 50% reduction, 60% reduction, having non-food biomass as the primary feedstock, and all of it sounds... and. I think the thing that excites me most, which I want to talk about in a little bit, is that direct replacement component. Mm -hmm. But let's help the 
I, I guess one question that I do have is you're saying 50% reduction. What is that 50% reduction compared to? So it's off a 19, um, I want to say it's off a 1990 baseline gasoline and diesel. Okay. So there's an actual, there's an actual real calculation and they may have updated that. So I might have to go back and check that. It might be up, updated to 2007 in the seven bill, but it's basically um, a carbon emissions calculation that was generated. And then what EPA currently uses is five different models and they run them through those five models to create um, a calculation of what the carbon reduction is. And where a lot of the reductions coming from is because you're dealing with renewable feedstocks, right? Then the plant material is fixing carbon and its photosynthesis process. And that carbon is being sequestered in the soil. So they get credit for that sequestration of carbon, which is why you see these um, carbon reductions um, versus regular oil that doesn't have any of that. So the primary reduction component then is the simple fact that you're using something that is that is kind of part of the carbon cycle yeah. and not a fossil fuel that you're pulling up out of the ground. That's correct. And I, I want to really, I want to really make this next point uh, for the listeners. It is absolutely essential moving forward that if we are going to, as a nation and a world, deliver carbon reduction um, to address climate change, that agriculture be front and center at the table and part of that solution set because the natural carbon cycle involves forest lands and grasses and crops and all those things are a fundamental component of how we're going to reach our goals in the future. Yeah, I I completely agree and that is one of those those groups that I want to have more on the podcast because yep. because ultimately this is this is all about about security not only in energy but also in food and also in in climate control which dovetails into electricity so yep. i love that point that agriculture is a key component because ultimately as we're switching off of fossil fuels into what in the areas where we can agriculture and and those biomass feedstocks that's going to be coming from the agricultural industry. So, so let me give you an example. Let me give you a real world example of one of my clients without using their name. Okay. So I have a, one of the, I represent a lot of the large refiners in the U S and one of the things that's occurring uh, as we speak this morning is um, some of these guys, pardon me, some of these members have taken traditional refining facilities and they are converting them to make what we call renewable diesel, which is a, exactly an ASTM spec replacement for highway diesel or heating oil. And if you want to, you can tweak it and also make components for gasoline that are direct gasoline replacement or components for jet fuel. Okay. And, and so one of those members has 7 million acres that they've put under contract for the soybean oil. And 
one of the things they required when they wrote those contracts with the various farmers under that arrangement was that they apply regenerative agriculture, which maximizes carbon sequestration in the farming practices and reduces some of the fertilizer use, which comes from natural gas and others, so that you wind up having a lower overall, what we call carbon index footprint from that particular process, right? And so one of the things that many of my members are doing, including Cargill, are really trying to work, and Louis Dreyfus, uh, are really trying to work with the agriculture community to create more modern methods for farming, which focus more on carbon sequestration and the fixing of carbon uh, over time. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Since you, this is a very interesting sounding project. I think I may know the one if it if they've had a public announcement. I may know about this project, but I'll I won't I won't guess on the air. But I am curious: Are there member organizations or member companies part of the the um, Advanced Biofuels Association that you can talk about and oh, absolutely. And Absolutely. Uh, let me give you another real world example, um, because I, I did a speech, an ESG speech in New York last Friday. And one of the things that came up in that speech is, OK, are you guys just greenwashing? Are you guys just uh, are you really doing something? Yeah. And so one of the examples I gave that room um, was um, the example of marathon refining and P66. Hmm. So now I'm going to turn to the biodiesel side. The biodiesel side um, took 15 years to deliver the first 1.5 billion gallons of biodiesel. And that also was enhanced after the passage of RFS1 and RFS2. Those two companies in the next two years are going to convert uh, two refineries, uh, pardon me, three refineries, And between those three refineries, at the end of the day, they're going to deliver 1.5 billion gallons of renewable diesel, which is a complete replacement fuel for diesel. It has no blend level limits on it. It is totally fungible in the existing pipeline system. um, And it it performs identically with the same energy density as uh, diesel from oil. Now, that is one heck of an accomplishment. And, you know, there was quite a bit of money spent um, and it was quite a bit of efforts effort spent to make sure contractually they had sufficient forms of feedstock. At this time, it's generally fats, oils, tallows and greases uh, to run about a 50,000 barrel a day uh, refinery um, to make these fuels. Now, that is a real world on the ground example and those two plants are making those fuels today um, as they ramp up to full capacity by 2025. Thank you, Mike, for that great example. Now, I am aware that there are other companies that are also part of the Advanced Biofuel Association. Uh, Companies I'm aware of are ones like Fulcrum, Oberon, and Jivo. Could you talk to those a little bit and what what kind of work they're doing in the advanced biofuel space? Sure. So 
those those are three companies that don't actually make fuels today um, in larger quantities. But Jivo has been able to to make actual um, actual jet fuel, and uh, and we've the flame the, the United Airline plane that flew down from you know, um, from Chicago into DC this year on 100% SAF. Uh, that that fuel was provided by Jivo. It was also provided by Virant, uh, two of our members. One is a mechanical chemical process. The other is a synthetic biology process. So again, you get to see the illustration of different science uh, coming to solve this problem. Uh, one of the things that I'm most proud about of our member Jivo is they are getting ready to build a 40 million gallon facility in South Dakota, and that will become the first net zero facility in the United States. Um, and net zero is a very important concept as we move forward because what it allows them to do is to replace hydrocarbon-based electricity with solar, wind, and biogas in order to reach CI index scores in the range of 100% reduction. Um, Fulcrum is managing their new facility, which they just commissioned about three weeks ago. That's a 10 million gallon facility that will make a pyrolysis oil, which will then be upgraded by Marathon Ether Martinez Refinery in California. Um, so what used to be garbage is now going to become a diesel fuel or a jet fuel. So that's real progress. Thanks, Blake. I appreciate your, your nudge there. Yeah, those are those are great examples and very exciting to see that progress. And you said the the Jivo plant is going to be the first. What's the maximum reduction that you see right now from any one of your members? Well, some of them are running 70, 80 percent reductions, and that's really based on the, the feedstock type. Um, so if I use tallow, I'm, I'm looking at a 70 percent reduction to make renewable diesel. Um, if I am using a woody biomass with a certain CI index, um, like, like uh, Velocis is doing in Mississippi, they're building a plant, or Red Rock in the state of Oregon, um, then that allows me to reach, depending on the type of wood and the life cycle conversion rate of their sequestration of the type of wood, um, that, that could get you to 80% pretty easy. Wow. Yeah. So that's pretty exciting to hear. Yeah. Let me make, let let me make one other point that, that a lot of people miss. So I I refer to this as a layered blending approach. So as these fuels, as we volumetrically, when you, first of all, when you get all these big players um, that are now, you know, turning their boats and and looking at taking what used to be oil-based facilities and making them hundred percent renewable, and I'm seeing quite a bit of that, by the way. But when you look at it, now we're looking at massive volumes that we're trying to create by, say, 2035, 2040. So let's say, let's say we could create um, 25% of the jet fuel as renewable fuel. Well, you're going to have, have to have um, woody biomass as part of that mix at a far higher level if you're going to deliver 20 or 30 billion gallons of fuel. And, you know, just to give everybody a reference point, pre, pre-COVID, we were running about 
27 billion gallons of jet a year, 52 billion gallons of diesel, and 140 billion gallons of gasoline. As we move forward with electric vehicles, cafe, public transportation, and general societal changes, uh, that 140 billion gallon number will drop. And, And so the ethanol folks, which are trying to push for E15 right now, um, they're really hoping for that so they can sustain the volumes that they've built, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, as the, gallon, as the number of gallons of gasoline drops, it'll require less ethanol because it gets blended at 10% at a minimum, right? Mm-hmm. As we move forward and these other fuels come on, there's no blend wall constraints. So I could blend, uh, let me say, I could take Jivo's fuel or I could take Oberon's fuel and I can blend those at 16%, some of them as high as 60%. Now I've got a 60% renewable component in the gasoline pool, and I'm still able to blend 10% ethanol on top of it. So now, now we've got a footprint that's a minimum of a 50% reduction under the current law. If I take net zero and add it on top of it and start taking out coal-fired power plants and natural gas-fired plants, now, all of a sudden, I've got the ability to raise it, you know, in the 100% reduction range. So all of these things are being looked at very seriously. All of these things are on the drawing boards of these companies. And what is very essential for us as a nation is to put a public policy set behind that, which gives certainty and assurance for these capital investments, which are going to need to be made to deliver the goods. Yep. Absolutely. So this this is all very exciting. I'm glad you mentioned electric vehicles, though, because this is one of those natural progressions that people always ask. Mm-hmm. If we are moving towards electrification of transportation, and and everybody and their mothers and their and their whole family having EVs, why would we need biofuels? Well, that's a great question. I'm really glad you asked it. Um, you know, some elements are easier to electrify than others. And so the one that I think that leaps off the page at first is the airline industry. And, you know, can we electrify the airline industry or do we need to take the airline industry in a different direction um, relative to hydrogen or some other form of fuel? At the moment, um, liquid transportation fuels are the most obvious because they're energy dense. That's why we use liquid transportation fuels in the first place. And they just have good energy density and allows airplanes and other things to ocean going vessels would be another one. Heavy duty trucks would be a third one. Um, Those are harder things to electrify given the performance requirements um, of power that all three of those types of vehicles need. Um, And so at least uh, we call it the electrification gap uh, at ABFA, uh, it, even the president admitted that, you know, if we could just get 50% of the light duty f- fleet by 2035, um, it would still leave, uh, you know, a, a real demand for that third filter that I was talking about, which is economic prosperity, um, is still going to need the heat, light, and mobility, and the, and the liquid transportation fuels are going to have to play a role between now and 2050. So that, that's how I would answer that question. It's an all of the above energy approach. 
Um, that all of the above energy approach, in my view, will add um, new types of fuels and new types of feedstocks to be able to deliver what will essentially become uh, an economy that addresses externalities for the first time in history um, and delivers carbon reduction across the board. Yeah, I really like that. And that makes so much sense talking about these these long haul trucking planes boats it it just seems like those would have a very difficult time running on batteries they, i think they have, one, they have performance issues i mean you know you look at i don't know i'm a boater right and i i can tell you <laughs> there's even a difference between gasoline and diesel um a diesel motor the rpms when you're running over a six foot wave they never change in a gasoline motor, because the, the thrust is different, as you go over the wave, you'll see your, your RPMs drop. So there are just certain things that need um, a different type of power. And, you know, diesel provides a lot of that power. And, and quite frankly, many of my members are on the diesel side of the equation. Hmm. Yep. I have always preferred diesel engines. I used to have a big truck, but I I switched it out for a bike mostly because of this kind of conversation we're having here with energy transition. And yeah, I only worked three miles from from home, so I said I'm going to start biking rather than driving. But as we talk about renewable fuels and renewable diesel, it it almost makes me want to go back and and buy that truck because of the because of the torque and because of that just the, the raw power that you get from from that diesel fuel. And you get a 35% um, efficiency gain, right? Yep, that as well. Because it's pressure, not spark. Yeah. Um, you know, and so when you're running a boat um, and it weighs forty to 60,000 pounds like a sport fish boat, you really need those diesel motors to be able to propel it. Mm-hmm. So one thing we, we have talked about, and I just want to clarify and make it very clear for the listener and for, for anybody going back and listening to this, with, with biofuels, that first word being, first part of that being bio and mm-hmm. thinking about food, that is always an issue. Thinking about, about food supply, food security, and it sounds like the majority of what these advanced biofuels are are using as feedstock are not are not directly competing with food. But I guess is there any part of the of the the supply chain for advanced biofuels that ultimately do in some way add risk or add concern for food security? So so let me that is a it's a really good question and it's a really important question now at this particular time. So again, I, I've spent 30 years around the fuels industry. Um, I personally had the opportunity to do the largest new source review clean air settlement over nine U.S. refineries. So I'm uniquely um, aware of the refining system and the fuels that come from it and how it works. So let's take this, let's take this food uh, versus fuel issue, and let's let's look at it through about two or three different lenses. Um, at the moment, we we have structural refining shortages in various parts of the world for a, a range of different reasons. Right? We also have um, 
supply dislocations relative to um, responses for the Ukraine war. And we are, we're in the midst of trying to reallocate um, oil supply around the world, and we're seeing significant changes of where the Russian oil is moving, and we're seeing significant changes on the products that we used to all depend on, including the United States and the distillate side of the equation. And it's going to take a while to structurally um, rewire the system, for lack of a better way of explaining it. The agricultural system, um, we're not really seeing much impact here in the U.S. We're seeing inflation, but we're not seeing supply dislocation. And we did have a bad year last year in Canada relative to canola. But again, you know, the crop year in and year out, the crops have a tendency um, to be able to straighten the stuff out easier than systems that are dependent on infrastructures, right? And so the oil and gas industry is an infrastructure-based system. The agriculture system is a commodity move it around system. And so it's a little easier to work the kinks out in food supply relative to people um, increasing their plantings uh, in the commodity agricultural business. So when I look at, I'm going to go to a second piece. So when I look at where we are and I lay time and feedstocks over a range of time, where we are right now is we, we're largely dependent, if we're going to make SAF, um, we're largely dependent on first-generation feedstocks uh, between now and 2030 because they're the most abundant. Um, we uh, at ABFA were so concerned with this subject that we commissioned a very expensive feedstock study on first-generation feedstocks last year. Um, And that study showed us, and the way we did the study was we calculated the average volumes of fats, oils, and greases all around the world. We looked at the independent programs in the five different countries of the world that drive this space. And then we subtracted out the food-based use from the availability and left, and, and we calculated a remainder. And the remainder showed us what the possibility of conversion was in terms of gallons. At the, to drop to the bottom line, our study showed us that by 2030, uh, in the distillate side of the pool, including jet, uh, we could have somewhere in the neighborhood of 9 billion gallons of fuels in the U.S. that were renewable diesel, biodiesel, or jet from a remainder which had no impact on the food supply. In the current situation with the war, there are food supply impacts coming out of Ukraine because it's a breadbasket as well as Russia. But they're not, you know, they're they're located mainly in the Far East and in Africa. And we're hoping that that will be able to um, be abrogated uh, with other countries like Latin America uh, helping create supplies in those areas which are short. But this is an area that needs to be looked at Um, It needs to be thoughtfully navigated in our future until we bring on uh, more feedstocks, both things like air capture um, combined with carbon sequestration and sequester, um, gaseous conversion from power plants and other things that's possible to create 
uh, circular carbon op options, uh, woody biomass, municipal solid waste. Um, there are a range of non-food feedstocks that begin to uh, volumetrically um, outpace the first generation guys um, as we move out to 2035 to 2050. And that, that's what I think is probably going to happen. Um, but we're going to have to measure all that as we move forward, because at the end of the day, if we don't have a model that we all agree to in terms of carbon reduction, then you're not going to get the buy-in from the folks that are spending the billions and billions of dollars to make this energy transition occur. Yep. Yeah, and that's it's really interesting there to hear how much potential and how much momentum there is on those those non-impactful feedstocks and how much running room there is. But ultimately, I think if I if I heard you correctly, you said nine billion gallons, whereas I think where we need to be is Oh, you need to be at 50 or 60 billion gallons. Yeah. So we still have a, a pretty long way to go oh, even yeah. with oh, that, yeah. that great momentum. Yeah. And so one of the things that I just I want your, your listeners um, to understand is we do not have a clear policy at the federal level now in place for some of these different types of feedstocks. And one of the things that's going on that is frustrating for many, many people who are trying to make these things happen in carbon reduction is the one program we have is a renewable fuels program, and that is a renewable feedstocks-based program. So if I want to use air capture or I want to take um, uh, carbon monoxide from a steel plant and convert it into fuel, um, you know, those are things that don't fit under the program. And so we need to have a broader array of policy, which economically um, rewards those things for being part of an all of the above solution. And they need to be balanced out. So economically, all these folks are starting at the same starting line and, and it's fair and equitable because not everybody, certain feedstocks will require less money than others. And the fuels ultimately need to be able to compete head to head in a free market that prices the fuels and prices in the externalities for the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was going to be one of my questions is kind of where these fuels are in terms of their price to generate, because that is one of those things that I, that I'm hearing. These are very great for the environment. And we are finding feedstocks that are not impacting food supply, but ultimately it's going to come down to that, that point you made that this has to be prosperous, which to me, the consumer has to, it has to be at least, it has to be at least at the same price. If not a, it has to be a, a price that they can be stomached by the consumer. Yeah, well, and again, that's that's why I put uh, that's why I laid those three frames out at the beginning of the call, right? Because we want to have economic prosperity. One of the three lenses that I talked about. We want to be able to um, enjoy our lives. We want to have GDP continue to move forward. Um, it's interesting when you look back across history. Um, once we get uh, once our energy costs get above four percent GDP. 
then um, you start taking chickens out of everybody's pots um, because energy takes a bigger bite of the GDP apple. And so we really need to try to, to keep our eye on the ball on all three things, right? That we have ec- energy security so that we're, we can turn our air conditions on in 100-degree days and, and turn our heaters on when it's cold. But we also know, need mobility, too. So it's a range of solutions that are going to have to be uh, brought to the table, which means a wider array of stakeholders are going to have to be part of this process. And a one-size-fits-all approach is not is just not going to work in this situation if we're going to deliver the carbon reductions we need. So I, I'm really, I'm really, I try to put the elephant in the center of the room. Um, it's the only way I personally know how to solve problems. Um, and I think we can have this conversation in an incredibly constructive way. And there will be different solutions that make sense in different places in the world. Um, given their natural resource base and given their their um, own legal systems, so this is this is a, lo- a very challenging moment in our history. Um, I really encourage uh, people to have an open mind uh, and not try to put uh, round round pegs in square holes, um, because we're going to have to we're going to have some things that that do really well, and we're going to have some things that fail. Yep. Yeah, so it sounds like to me that there there is a lot of a lot of growth potential, a lot of forward momentum that can be done, but ultimately there are those those different aspects of the regulatory side and and the collaboration and, and discussion side for just general future growth of of both the the advanced biofuels and that industry, but also in a way that is equitable and fair and allows all of us to have the opportunity to prosper. Yeah. So go ahead. Given given everything that we've been talking about and kind of where the current energy mix is today and where the advanced biofuels industry is today, which it I think earlier you said is is at Five is it five million or five billion gallons of production annually right now? Uh, we're we're around five billion gallons uh, a year. Okay, five billion. Yeah, we when you look that. at when you look at the RFS Ren pool number for twenty twenty two, it's five and a half billion hmm. Rens, which means it's about four billion gallons of fuel. Okay. So what would it take to, earlier we mentioned a number of 50 billion, mm-hmm. what would it really take for, for us to get to that mark? Well, we're going to need public policy support. And that public, that public policy support can come in a variety of ways. Uh, one, one option set is to look at um, some carbon pricing incentives, uh, Senator Wyden um, in, the, in the past has suggested that we move to a model of a dollar a gallon and you get uh, a percentage of your reduction, right? That's one model. That's called a performance-based tax credit. Um, other folks have talked about uh, carbon, carbon taxes. Um, that has it, you know, when gasoline's $5 a gallon, that's not a popular thing in in Washington right now. 
Um, but places in the world like Canada have already implemented. So that's something we are going to need to look at. And, and again, I, I want to remind the listeners, what we're doing for the first time in history is we used to just pollute and nobody paid for it. And so we're paying for the externalities because the externalities of protecting the world are in everybody's interest. And so we're trying to figure out a thoughtful way in which we move forward and reduce carbon emissions and other high precursor emissions like methane uh, so that we protect our world moving forward. And there's a price with that. As one of my members said when he was asked by one of the guys in the airlines industry who said, you know, I, it's got to be the same price as jet fuel today. And, and one of my members said, well, we can all just go home then if that's what you think, because your consumers who are flying on these airplanes want to protect the world and reduce carbon. And we can't do that and not price it into the fuel. So there is going to be, be a bit of that and, and we'll evolve and governments can help ease the pain for our consumers. Um, but I, I do believe a free market approach to creating these volumes in the first place, supported by an EPA that has appropriate models for carbon, or carbon reduction measurement, um, which they're currently working on. They need to be better at that. And they also need to be better at, you know, granting new pathways and not closing things down before we know whether or not they'll work. And a lot of that is now coming to the fore as we look at a net zero approach going forward and what does that really mean relative to how the statute is? And I think some of these questions are going to get very tricky given the West Virginia decision that the Supreme Court has just made on carbon. Um, because what the Supreme Court has basically said to Congress is you no longer can just punt the ball to an executive agency to play fill in the blank. Uh, you've actually got to tell them what it is you want them to do. And yeah. there are a range of things. Um, that I think are going to be challenged in court now as a result of that decision, because uh, that's not the way the, the federal agencies have necessarily been operating in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it... I mean, that's it, a very interesting topic going forward. Yep. Yeah, and more generally, it it's always interesting to hear the differences between... And and really, even the dichotomy that, that you're saying here, the the goals and necessity of the free market and being able to generate and innovate these new ideas, but then also needing that governmental policy support yeah. that that gives you a kind of that foundation to start on. It yeah. gives you the certainty, right? And we're talking about your your title is perfect, as I said at the top of the call. Because we're talking about moving trillions of dollars of capital to change and address carbon reduction. That's what we're talking about to get to where we need to go. Yep. Yeah. And one thing that I, I want to touch on is a little bit of a, a tangent, but one thing that I really like about the idea of these advanced biofuels is the fact that it is a plug and play solution, if you will, in yep. that you can you can directly replace these with existing fuels and i i'm curious cuz i guess this is i didn't realize that before is that something that is really pushed in oh, terms yeah. of the marketing side of it 
Oh, absolutely. For those that are making them. I, I mean, one of the coolest days of my life was when the Secretary of Navy invited me to come out to the USS Nimitz and I flew aboard the Nimitz and they took six F-18 Super Hornets and we ran a 50-50 blend of fuel um, made by the Geismer plant down in, um, in Louisiana that's now owned by REG. Uh, and I got to talk to the pilots after they had flown their F-18s on the fuel. And, and they actually, the molecular structure was a little lighter, so they got to actually carry a little more, which made them more battle ready. But the performance was identical, right? Wow. Yeah, and I think that is, that's one of the things that I would say I feel like people are less, or are more sensitive to is the idea of kind of being able to keep their own status quo mm -hmm. and being able to have easy solutions. And to me, being able to go and buy a renewable diesel at the, at the pump, as opposed to choosing the regular diesel, like that's a, that's an easy solution to make. Yep. And you don't have to go buy a new car. You don't have to make sure you're getting the right color pump and making sure your engine works with that. You don't have to do extend or new types of maintenance. It's, it's really it's simple. Plug and play. Yeah. It's plug and play. Yep, absolutely. So I just wanted to come back to that because to me, reuse is one of the most so, important. So let me part. give you an example of how, how you can incentivize that in public policy, right? I'm going to give you two examples. These are two, two things that we're specifically trying to encourage EPA to consider in what we call the set rule. Um, which allows them, which is how they're going to structure the, the RFS program's workings going forward. So one thing they could do is they could say, all right, anybody that does better than the 50% minimum, we're going to reward you one-tenth of a REN for every 10%. You exceed the 50%. So now if I get 70%, now I get two-tenths of a REN. The program is currently structured on energy density. So if I'm making a renewable diesel because the energy density is the same as diesel, I get 1.7 worth of energy density. And if I were to add two to three tenths, I'd have two rents per every gallon. And right now those rents are about $1.80, right? So that's, that's a real support system to um, encourage the capital investments to make that particular fuel. Um, you could, you could also say for fuels that don't require any infrastructure and are totally fungible like renewable diesel or renewable jet, or renewable gasoline for that matter, um, we're going to give you a couple of tenths of a REN because there's no infrastructure required and it's plug and play and we're going to reward those people that make those fuels. Those are fundamental policy choices which we could be making as well as you know, speeding up the way in which we approve pathways, which is, which we're going to need going forward for these new feedstocks, um, that could really make a difference and really expedite the volume more quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. And it definitely sounds like that is, that's a very good way to incentivize as opposed to, as opposed to penalize people or as opposed to yeah. just trying to to just make that that baseline foundation i think that's a great way to to approach that so if you want to tweak the system the system's already there 
that's an easy tweak to make. Yep, absolutely. Well, with that, I, I want to transition into my final questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. Sure. That first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Um, I'm a real fan of, I'm a, I'm a policy wonk, and I'm a real fan of Daniel Jurgen. And his first book was The Prize. Um, he's just written a new book called The Map, How Climate Change and Countries Around the World Are Going to Have to Duke It Out. And it's really, really a good, thoughtful read. Uh, and it's comprehensive. And it's the only book I've seen that really brings, you know, energy supply, demand, and climate together in one move. Mm. Yep. The new map is a is a common recommendation. And I I completely agree. It's one of those books that is very good, very comprehensive, and really is a it's a must read for anybody working in energy, in yep. any aspect of energy. It really is one of those must reads. Yep. I agree. I just I love it. Yep. The next question, when will we be net zero as a society? Um, I got asked this question last Friday, and my answer was, I'm not so sure we're going to make it by 2050, um, but I think we're on the right glide path, and we will make it. Um, we, we need to keep, you know, keep our nose to the grindstone here. We still need to do some more carbon accounting um, uh, work in terms of really knowing what kind of reductions we're getting for certain things. Uh, we, you know, I'm really encouraging us to try to get the whole world on one set of modeling so that we're all, there's no gaming in the system. And so we don't create trade impediments and other things. Um, I think we can do that. I, I think the Argonne Greek model is a good starting place. Uh, most of my members like that. And most models around the world are based off of greed. Um, but, you know, I think uh, we're going to get there. Maybe it's 2060 instead of 2050, but we got to do our work now. Mm. Yep, absolutely. And I like that answer. And I, I completely agree. We need to have a consistent modeling and and one of the things that's really excited me, a few recent guests have talked about the talked about blockchain and immutable ledgers to yep. keep track of all the carbon accounting. Mm -hmm. And I think with the with the push of digitalization and blockchain technology, I think we're we're going to be able to understand where all the carbon is and where it's all going. And that's something that nobody's ever actually pointed out. I think you're the the closest one to it is that if, if we're doing all of this carbon accounting or if we are not doing all of this carbon accounting, when are we actually going to know if we hit net zero or how right. are we going to know? Yeah. That's a very, what, and what's point. the standard by which you made that decision? Yep, exactly. So the, the next question is now you actually get to ask me a question. Well, I, I am really impressed with the questions you asked me. And so my question to you is, when you do these podcasts, you know, what kind of reactions do you get and what and what what reactions surprise you from your listeners? That that's a good question. And it's a hard question to answer because the 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 thing I love about podcasts is kind of that anonymity anonymity aspect because mm -hmm. the the data that you get is basically what country is a download coming from and how many downloads did you get without having some type of email 
that you type in to send them something or some type of landing page, you mm. really don't get much information from mm. the audience. But then there are those individual interactions. So I have interacted with a handful of my of my fans, I guess, or of my followers. And and all the most of the time they are they are appreciative of the pragmatic approach. The fact that I'm sitting here talking about not everybody getting EVs and getting excited about biofuels because it means I can go out and buy a new diesel truck. Like that is something that you won't hear often in in communities that are that are focused on decarbonization. And I think that that is that's the one thing I've heard is that people appreciate the nuance that that I'm willing to have and that and that kind of debate and realism when it comes to decarbonization. And I think I think that question about net zero is a great one that that I've had some people say we're going to get there by 2030 because of X, Y and Z. Other people say we'll never get there. And and ultimately, that's I I want to have people who who are on all ends of the spectrum, because ultimately we all do have that same goal of having a the the points you made earlier. We want a prosperous life. We want to have a an equitable life, and we want to have a I guess the a clean life. Right. And and. That's what we are all targeting, and that's why all of my guests are are doing something, making those changes for that for that future. So, so let me leave you with one thought, or your the listeners with one thought. Um, number one, we can get we can do this. We know how to we we got new technologies coming on. We've got existing technologies that are overperforming, and we're already underway making these changes and delivering these low carbon fuels of the future. And I'm really proud that many of my members have already endorsed net zero. Some of the biggest companies in the world, BP, Shell, Total, um, these guys are, the, these members are all doubling down. They're spending billions of dollars to make this transition occur. They're doing it now. They're not waiting. Um, I see the real things they're doing on a daily basis because I represent them. And the thing that we also need is we need all of the folks that are listening to your podcast to stay engaged with their governments, no matter where they are in the world, to make sure we sort this problem out in a thoughtful, constructive, and open and transparent way. Because um, it's the only way it's going to work uh, to expedite what we need to do um, to, save, to save the planet and to live those lives and, and have economic prosperity and environmental sustainability along with uh, energy security. So I thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. Um, your questions were fantastic. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how your, what your response is to um, our exchange today. And if anybody would like more information on the Advanced Biofuels Association, please go to abfa.org uh, and you'll have our connections. Um, for further conversations. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Mike, for joining me on the show and for for all of your insight. And I 
I really think the the audience and everybody. I know I learned a lot on this show, so I hope everybody does. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating, leave a review, share this episode with a friend. Doing these simple actions will help this story reach a wider audience and ultimately help get these, these ideas and this motivation and these calls to action of being engaged that will help that occur. So if you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And if you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon, mention OGGN, and they will give you a free day pass. Whenever I'm in Houston, I'm at the Canon. And it's also where we host our monthly industry mixers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.